I'm Malia Hoffman. I'm here with Fred Ramirez, and you're listening to the Carrero Podcast. Today, our guest is Daniel Kinzer. Daniel is currently developing a new program, which he often refers to as a seed, that is meant to grow into a new learning ecosystem, first in Hawaii and then around the Pacific. It draws inspiration from the natural world, indigenous culture, and cutting-edge technologies, and is committed to giving youth an opportunity to engage full-time in addressing the challenges of our time. For now, it's called Pacific Blue Studios. He first got into teaching through his work in the Wilderness Guide. His desire is to understand and help address social and environmental challenges and issues he was learning about within the educational system and paradigm. He does a lot of what he sometimes calls green geosteam, or place and community-based sustainability education that integrates science, technology, humanities, indigenous culture, and the arts into a framework for exploration, conservation, and innovation and design. So welcome, welcome, Daniel. Um, before we get started, please share with us where you're from, what your kinder through high school years were like. Did you have any favorite subjects, any favorite teachers? Yeah. I grew up, I was born in Santa Monica, in oh. California, and, and uh, spent most of my childhood, moved around quite a lot, but most of my childhood in Southern California. Um, in Los Angeles, and uh, yeah, I I had um, what sort of come to be really surprising to me. I had I had a great experience in school. I grew up mostly in public schools in a small suburb of LA called El Segundo, right yeah, by the, right by the airport. Yes, and uh, yeah, really uh, really enjoyed my time in school. Um, I think uh, you know it never felt like stressful. Never felt like I was being forced to do anything. Um, and I look back on that now and it was, now it surprises me because it feels like I had such a unique experience where I was really, you know, not overwhelmed with too much work or with too many expectations or like wasn't overscheduled. I had a lot of free time to play after school. And, um, so I, I definitely enjoyed most of my subjects. I'd say I was really drawn to, um, really drawn to the sciences and anything involving the natural world. I love being outside. Um, and I played a lot of sports as a kid. And so, you know, any, any chance I got to like be out of the classroom and moving around and exploring, um, that was, uh, that was, those are sort of my best memories from school. Um, but yeah, I had some, I had some great, some great favorite teachers and math teacher who kind of gave us that classic like roller coaster project. I remember that being a lot of fun, doing a lot of stuff about space, um, learning a lot about what it would be like to be an astronaut or, or space exploration. That stuff was always really compelling to me. Um, but yeah, as I went through school, I, I ended up transferring to a private school between 10th and 11th grade. So I started going to a private school, Harvard Westlake School in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, that's where I graduated from, and um, I had a great experience there too. It was a little bit different because all of a sudden the academic expectations were a little bit higher, and there were, uh, I think, students there felt a little bit of the pressure that we see a lot of students facing today mm -hmm. um, in high school. But I think I'm real thankful for my earlier upbringing and and sort of open education that I didn't carry that much of that with me. So I didn't stress out too much about grades or SAT scores or college admissions or anything like that. There was always an expectation that I would go to college, but um, it never felt like something that was really stressful. So yeah, I, I had a great, a great childhood and, and sort of teenage years growing up in Southern California. And, uh, Sounds like the perfect environment for learning to happen. You know, it was, it, for me, for me, it was, um, I just realized like for, 
for a lot of for a lot of other kids who maybe have some similar aspects in their environment like it, it, it doesn't work for everybody I think I just had um, I was just really privileged you know I sit in a lot of privilege and had a family who was supportive but yeah. not overbearing and I had teachers who were mm-hmm. excited to sort of see my creativity and curiosity blossom and weren't too but weren't overly strict or, or constricting and so I, I think I just lucked out so then so then tell us how does a socal guy from samo end up at vanderbilt (laughs) you know it was uh it was interesting interesting experience kind of uh, making that transition to nashville and and vanderbilt was kind of unexpected but i had the opportunity to play basketball there oh okay and vanderbilt was a division one and in the southeastern conference and uh to be honest uh a little bit out of my league um, but the opportunity came up to uh, to play for them um, just because of the circumstances of their sort of coaching changes and recruiting. And uh, and so I was really excited to, to sort of have that opportunity. And I ended up only playing for a little over a season. Um, so I played my freshman year and, and into my sophomore year, um, but just ended up falling out of love with basketball a little bit mm-hmm. and when it became like such a, such a heavy demand and so much work and um, but really fell in love with what I was doing with, with the Vanderbilt community and with Nashville. It was definitely like this interesting experiment. I felt like I was living in a little <laughs> bit of a different world. <laughs> for but your area of study was psychology and neuroscience. So that seems like it would be very demanding and hard to be a student athlete doing that. But what was your what were your goals with that as a major? You know, I think uh, probably almost half of the Vanderbilt undergraduate um, you know, freshman class has, has, has said that stated their pre-med. Um, and I was one of those, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to go to medical school. And Vanderbilt had a great sciences department program and they, they uh, have a great medical school there. And um, so there were a lot of resources around that. And at the time um, that I started getting into psychology, um, it was really because there were a couple of professors in the sort of cognitive science and neuroscience department who were using uh, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, was becoming a powerful um, experimental tool and research tool to understand the human brain kind of real time, right, is what it felt like. And so uh, I learned about that in one of my psychology classes and said, I got to know more. And at the time, they didn't have a neuroscience major. Um, but a few of us who were really interested in neuroscience, they kind of invited to create this concentration that would later become hmm. a, a focused neuroscience major at Vanderbilt. And so we had all this freedom to kind of pick and choose our classes and these really neat opportunities to sort of step into the labs of some of these researchers, both in the med- medical school, col- uh, the school of psychology. Um, so that was that was just a, a sort of remarkable thing for an undergraduate to get exposed to. So it was, it was almost accidental and it was mostly driven by my curiosity i didn't i wasn't like oh i'm gonna be a brain surgeon or this is gonna prepare me for this career it was just like this stuff is super interesting the brain is this amazing complex (laughs) and um and i I, yeah i ended up having a blast it it never felt like it never felt like that much work um it felt like just a series of really interesting question and again that's just like the best way to inspire learning is through someone's curiosity and like you said in your secondary school years you were just good at school you liked it you were really inspired by the sciences and then you invented your own undergraduate major at Vanderbilt 
and these are the types of experiences we always try to provide for our students is, you know, the love of learning and giving them choice. And it seems like you just were able to be involved in these opportunities, had the right supports, the right teachers involved. Uh, and you said it nicely when you said that you had the privilege of having those experiences. But um, now you're you're pursuing uh, a master's degree at ASU. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this, this degree program that I'm almost done with. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also been a, a really fun adventure, um, is in biomimicry. Um, and that's innovation inspired by nature. So it's looking to the natural world, to biology and ecology for examples on how we could better design our, our human world um, and the ways that we interface and interact with nature and with each other um, and with the goal of creating a, a more resilient, more sustainable, more regenerative planet. Right. Uh, and community and culture. I think there's a lot of social lessons we can take from nature as well, which has been really, really interesting part of, of my focus in biomimicry. But yeah, it's been it's it's been really a fascinating and unique window into how we think about our place in the world and our relationship to the natural world. I spoke a little earlier about how much nature in the natural world was always a, a classroom for me and a place to learn in. And biomimicry really takes it, has taken it a step further for me and, and turned the natural world into another teacher, not just another place to learn, but um, a set of living things and living systems to literally learn from and listen to and take examples from. And, and that's, uh, that's really, uh, it really changes a lot when you start looking at nature that way. You know, you could, it's not just a resource, something you have to use responsibly. You know, it's like a, it's a relative. It's a teacher. It's a. It's another living thing that has so much to offer us if we pay attention and pay pay close enough attention to it. So, um, I really, I really appreciated that. And again, been, you know, largely that was driven by my interest in sustainability. Um, some of the things I was learning as I spent a lot of my time traveling and teaching in international schools and visiting different parts of the world, um, learning about indigenous cultures around the world and how they sort of fit in so seamlessly with the natural world and, and thinking about especially how our education system um, and schooling system has become so disconnected from the natural world and the patterns and the rhythms are so unlike what we see in the natural world. And, and um, that disconnection, I said, I think we can solve this if we start paying attention to the right things and indigenous cultures and natural systems, ecologies seemed like those are the things we should be paying attention to. So it's been most of the people in the program are not really applying biomimicry in that way. They're inventing new products or new processes that are more sustainable and leveraging sort of some of nature's genius in that way. Um, and I've really been focused on at the sort of ecological level, how do we fit these pieces apart, these pieces together Correct. so that um, there's a little bit more integration, there's a little bit more reciprocity and uh -huh. You know, there's a, there's a little bit more balance um, in, in what we're doing in schools, um, or maybe a lot more of those things, not just a little more. Well, you, you you bring up a really good point, and one of the things that that we were looking at your bio, you're you're you've traveled, and and you've and you've really gone off off the beaten path with your, uh, I believe it was a National Geographic project over in. Antarctica. Um, can you can you tell us about your travels and and how they relate to to what you do as a um, as a as a teacher? 
that today uh, today is actually a special day because it was a year ago um, that I got home back here in Hawaii from my expedition to Antarctica. So a year ago, I was just coming back from that assignment with National Geographic. I was uh, a Grosvenor Teacher Fellow, um, which is a, a special program that National Geographic runs for teachers across North America. Um, that takes us on assignment to these remarkable destinations uh, in the hopes that we can bring that sort of spirit of exploration and bring part of the world back into our classrooms and communities when we return. And I think Antarctica is such a good example of what my travel experiences and all of the things I've done um, visiting different parts of the world, different countries, different ecosystems, um, because what it did was really make me want to understand my own home and my own place and my own community even more. And while I saw a lot of other educators wanting to kind of showcase these different parts of the world to their students, and they'd use all kinds of really interesting tools, and I tried to as well, you know, 360-degree photography and virtual reality and all these really interesting sort of live experiences to kind of stream these faraway places into the classroom. And I think that's valuable, and I thought that was really cool. But I actually wanted the students to not just know about the places that I visited, but go feel, have the feeling that I had. Go out and go into this place where all of a sudden my curiosity was sort of unleashed and broken open. And I had all kinds of questions about where I was and where I was living and where I was trying to fit in. And for most students, that's going to be their home communities. I'm all for really cool travel experiences. I think it brings a lot into the lives of students, and I do try to help create those opportunities for young people. And I also think that most of our young people are disconnected from their own neighborhoods, from the ecosystems that they live in, from the places that they're a part of. And so this sort of sense of urgency to really connect young people to their sense of place and their sense of community where they live and think of themselves as explorers and on assignment and on expedition right there um, at their homes and start treating classrooms like base camps instead of like the place where kids are going to be sitting all the time. Yeah. Um, that, that became something that I've, I think I've always believed in, but Antarctica just sort of pushed me up off the edge. It was like our kid, you know, creating a field trip once a month for a student is not enough. Like that's not going to build that sense of connection that we really need to have. It has to be a lived experience every day, similar to the one I was having in Antarctica and wishing I could have here in Hawaii. And so it's interesting, actually, just a couple weeks ago, I uh, finished up a two-week-long walk around Oahu. Wow. So I walked uh, 140 miles, including uh, 70, almost 70 of those miles with my two children who are only five and seven years old, which is, I had no idea they were going to make it that far. It was remarkable to know our place in that way and feel like, hey, we're on assignment. We're we're on an expedition, even though we were never more than sort of 40 miles from our, you know, not even 40 miles, 25, 30 miles from our home. We were in a completely different world because we were slowing down and we were invested in asking questions and understanding this this whole new place that we had new realized we almost knew nothing about because we're so busy driving around and answering emails and text messages and liking Instagram photos and (laughs) running to this practice or that meeting. And I was like, oh, there's there's a whole world here. And we saw so many endangered species. We had time in the ocean. We met all people living um, in all kinds of different circumstances and conditions and from so many different cultural backgrounds. Hawaii, we're, we're blessed to be surrounded by so much 
biological diversity and also cultural diversity and for my for my kids and for me to be able to sort of really sit in that and walk in that for for that amount of time was pretty special just as special as my time in antarctica if not even more so it, it, it sort of flips the sort of typical script on travel you know where it costs so much money but we we know that it's worth it to send young people to these different cultures in these faraway places but we're so hesitant to invest the time and the far less amount of money to really say you know what you need to be just as invested in exploring your own place and community i heard uh, a quote once from someone who said never hike with a toddler longer than you're willing to carry them was that the case for you on this trip <laughs> oh that person's uh that person's um really generous to their to their children <laughs> my, my, kids, my kids will tell you they're only five and seven they said daddy daddy's not that nice <laughs> they'll just leave us there if we don't want to keep walking um no i i um I, it was an interesting choice um you know to take my kids but as i thought about the purpose of the walk a, a big thing that kept coming up for me was I want to know what this experience is like through their eyes, you know, and, and I think in education generally, you know, we often have, we're often looking at young people through our own eyes and designing right. all these experiences for them or to deliver to them um, or to drag them through in a lot of cases. Um, and I remember not feeling that way and, and I, and, and finding out that a lot of people do feel dragged through their education and that's become, you know, part of, part of my mission is to say how do we how do we let people enter into this world from their place and from who they are and from what they want to discover and the questions that they're already asking because that that curiosity that I brought to my own education isn't unique to me it exists in all of us and I think I've seen that but we put pile so many things on um, so many of our own expectations onto young people that they forget that they're super curious and super creative and really amazing explorers and and to me, that's one of the tragedies of, of what happens in um, over the course of a young person's life through school. And one of the things I want to try to help to, I don't know if fix is the right word, but at least um, yeah. think of and address. Uh, one of my professors in my one of my graduate classes, she used to always say, like, okay, teachers always find a way to suck all the fun out of the learning. <laughs> and so the way you've said, like, you make it your mission to – basically put that spark back into education. I like that. And it seems like your mission and your philosophy is really aligned with that aloha spirit, that aloha mentality of, you know, being one with nature and respecting everything around you and knowing where you came from and everyone you can learn from, everything you can learn from. It seems like that's been sort of, based on what we're hearing today, your philosophy, your mission, lifelong. Or do you think now that you live in Hawaii, it's just become a little bit more prevalent or it's, I guess, maybe a little bit more pronounced? I, I, um, I don't want to diminish at all the things I've learned um, from Hawaii and from the Hawaiian community here. I mean, I think that, I think you, you captured it, that like a lot of what, a lot of my philosophy is informed by that sort of spirit and sense of aloha and, and the sort of interconnectedness that we all share with both the land, the place, and, um, and the people that we live with. I think I think of it as I finally found home. You know, like mm. I finally found the place where I where I feel like I really fit. Los Angeles was a super interesting place to grow up. Southern California was a, um, was a fun environment. There was a lot going on. I learned a lot. I'm really thankful for my ties to that place. 
Um, Nashville was interesting. All the places I've lived in the world have taught me so many things, um, but I've never felt as comfortable and as at home as I do, you know, in the last several years here uh, on Oahu and in Hawaii. And I think I knew that that was the case. I'd spent quite a bit of time in the islands before um, before I moved here, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's been pretty special to sort of try find my way here and feel like a lot of the things I've been thinking and exploring and wondering about and searching for, um, I feel like I've, I've kind of found them in this place, which is, which is a real gift. Um, now, now, based on that and based on everything in which you've been sharing, can you share with us and our, and our listeners, what are, what are some of your more exciting, I, I guess, um, project-based or problem-based learning projects yeah. that 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 you've been doing you know i'm really um as is kind of obvious from some of the things i've been sharing i'm really interested in tying project-based learning to place and so how do we how do we invest um time and attention and intention and in, in engaging students and studying their own communities and so i've done a couple of things and and one started several years ago through work i was doing in china with the chinese international school of hong kong I had the opportunity to invite a gentleman named John Francis, Dr. John Francis, who's also known as the Planet Walker. And um, his story is this remarkable story. He saw an oil spill. Two tankers collided in the early 70s up in um, San Francisco Bay. And he was living there at the time and witnessed this oil spill that happened. And he decided to give up riding or driving in cars. Um, so he just took this sort of radical approach. I'm only going to walk or maybe bike around and he thought everybody was going to kind of follow him along <laughs> and, uh, and be like, yeah, we're ditching cars. But he didn't, in LA, right? <laughs> he didn't live in L.A., right? He was up in, uh, you know, kind of Inverness, Point Reyes, up in yeah. Marin, Marin County. So yeah. a little bit out in the country. But he quickly realized, like, people thought, you're ridiculous, John. Why are you doing this? And that led him, after a couple of years of not riding or driving in cars, he decided he was going to spend a day not talking. He was like, I'm tired of arguing. and just getting in fights with people. It's like, this isn't working. So I'm just going to stop talking. And that day turned into two and turned into three and it turned into a month and turned into a year. It ended up lasting 17 years. And really? John walked across North America and the length of South America. Um, with And the whole time walking across North America, not speaking, he also earned all of his college degrees. So he went to got his bachelor's degree master's wow. degree. Got, he got a phd in in, in land management as wow. oil spills without speaking so the guy's a remarkable story um he gave a ted talk john francis i highly recommend people watch that story but i connected with john and invited him to come walk with me and some students in china and we were going to walk for a week and I thought we were going to do it in silence. John was like, that's a stupid idea. Why would you do that? <laughs> don't, make, don't make a bunch of high schoolers be silent for a week. It'll never work. Oh, man. I can't imagine that. Right? Um, but we ended up having, the, over a series of four walks in three years, you know, John and I and, and several students um, were just engaged in this sort of open-ended exploration of where do we fit in this in this place it was mostly international school students many from hong kong but we were in mainland china um some people will know that there's a lot of tensions political and cultural between hong kong and mainland china and uh, we had these incredible encounters with the biodiversity of the place the ecology of the place the communities we walked through urban and rural landscapes um, we were looking especially at water quality as we went. So we engaged students in using some 
some technology to sort of explore their environment and document the, the studies, but we left it really open-ended, um, full of opportunities for sort of social emotion, what we'll call social emotional learning, just that sort of interpersonal and intrapersonal um, awareness and, 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 and embarking on these expeditions as a team. And so one of the things that, that we call that planet walk, um, I've continued to do those kinds of things. You can, it informs what I did when I walked around Oahu. Um, John's become a very good mentor and teacher and friend, and uh, we continue to collaborate on projects with students. And I think the thing I learned there was that um, doing things together in projects is really important. Um, the outcome is not as important as doing things together. We want authentic outcomes, but we don't we don't want authentic outcomes to come at the uh, at the expense of authentic process and and authentic and just authenticity, just being together. Um, in ways that feel real and natural and appropriate um, and aren't so forced. Um, and that, you know, if, I think if, if we spend more time invested in figuring out how to pull people together, then some of those things that we spend, we currently spend a lot of time focusing on, like what's the right technology to use and what's the outcome going to be and what's the presentation going to look like at the end of this project, you know, all of those things end up taking care of themselves because young people can figure out they're going to ask those questions and they can figure those things out with the right kinds of support. Um, so it's, it's really about creating those authentic environments. And now, now I've done cool stuff of uh, some kids. Um, now that I'm in Hawaii, we have some youth in China who wanted to build a, um, a robotic boat, uh, a solar powered robotic boat. And we said, well, what if we built it and we, and we, we sent it to Hawaii from China. So that, that creates a whole new layer of challenge, yeah. right? Like we have to power a boat that's going to go all the way from China to Hawaii. We have to deal with whatever sort of political, you know, issues we're going to have to deal with um, as a result of that. And we have to do this on a pretty low budget. And what resources are we going to need from the community? And the youth are tackling this. This project launched in August. And the youth are tackling this at like breakneck speed. I can't even, I'm in Hawaii and can't even keep up with them. You know, I'm like, mm. oh my gosh, you guys are moving way faster than I thought we were going to move. Um, but it's really just, it's sparked because it's theirs. It's one of the things that they wanted to do that they think is really compelling. Um, and that's been, that's been a lot of fun. I think another thing that we are trying to build out here in Hawaii right now is a, is a platform for project and place-based learning called the Genius of Hawaii. Uh, and by genius, we don't mean like who's the smartest person in Hawaii. It's really that sort of collective genius, that ecological kind of genius of how things fit well together and, and how things are in balance and where do you find symbiosis and where do you find cyclical systems that are regenerative. And um, those involve a lot of different people and places and organizations. And we're trying to use GIS as well as like, uh, so geographic information systems and some really cool visualization tools to help young people start to create really dynamic and beautiful visualizations of their community. So what does sustainability and regenerative community and resilience really look like? So where is our community sort of thriving? You know, if a, if a hurricane hits Hawaii, uh, where are you going to want to go and who are you going to want to know? And, and what <laughs> parts of the community are really, are really going to be able to live well, even in the face of, of challenges that we're facing? Um, and they're uncovering some really fascinating stories. We're using the StoryCorps app, which I, you know, I hope people are familiar with. It's mm -hmm. a really amazing app for helping to collect stories. Um, they're using uh, both the new Google Earth uh, tools uh, for story map making and also the Esri ArcGIS story mapping tools. Um, and then, of course, the youth are so good already at so many different forms of media. So 
Um, they're collecting yeah. videos and images and things like that to, to add into these visualizations. So that Genius of Hawaii project is sort of just getting off the ground, but so far it's looking really promising. And um, there's a whole framework I won't go into that we use to help that sort of facilitate that process and that exploration. Um, but it's really centered in wonder and mm-hmm. a sense of adventure. So how do we how do we really say, oh, what are the things that we really want to know? And we usually um, initiate that process in story. So how do we how do we find a story that helps connect us to our place, um, connect us to a sense of purpose um, and belonging here, and then let that propel us into this sort of state of wonder where we just want to go out and we have lots of questions to ask. And from there, amazing things happen. Um, you know, I almost think sometimes I could just walk away after that part of the project. Yeah. And really cool things would would take place. So it, it's uh, it, that that's been my approach uh, recently. Um, but yeah, those are just some of the fun things that I've been doing with students. But there's a there, there's a lot there's a lot of, a lot of things that youth are uh, introducing me to. You know, part of the cool thing about my approach to project based learning is, you know, the students flip it around and they become the teacher for me almost nice. all the time. We we were checking out this project called Reefs Go Live because we were trying to figure out how to drive this little underwater drone um, that we have to go like look at the reef without going in the water. There's a lot of restrictions on being able to take students in formal programs into the ocean. So we we're like, well, we need a drone so we can go down and see what's under there. And uh, we did that, but it was like pretty it was technical. It was kind of difficult to actually see the things that we wanted to see. The students weren't that engaged. But they found this group in the Caribbean and Cayman Islands called Reefs Go Live, who are doing these live streams from uh, from dives taking place on the reef in the Caribbean, and then you know streaming out from underwater. They literally have I don't know if you guys have seen this, but no. literally have a mask where they've they've built in the technology to be able to sort of talk about what they're seeing on the reef and a camera on the mask. So you're you're literally listening to a scuba diver who's underwater sharing about what they're seeing on a reef that you can see live and this you know it's, it's not a, it's not accessible to everybody yet but the kids were like yeah my one of their parents you know here at uh at university of hawaii we have a lot of a lot of people who are doing oceanography marine biology um it's it's sort of a world one of the world leading institutions for research in that field so it was one of their they're like yeah my parents do this are working on this project with this group in the caribbean wow. and even this technology existed it was so I cool think, like how do we get that into every kid's life you know? yeah i think we're gonna probably lose fred to that project now because that sounds exactly. like his dream job oh my god so now um i'm gonna be off on my own doing the rest of this podcast he's gonna go that's right Oh, well, email, but I, I, I don't want to encourage the breakup. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, right. Don't break up the band, man. I know. Well, um, see, and, and that's, I guess, I guess one of the things you don't have to answer now is where your favorite dive sites are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys can talk later about yeah. that. But, um, but it sounds like your projects and your teaching philosophy is very much aligned with Nick Pattison's, which is how we got connected with you, Correct. and he was one of our earlier guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your work together and how you know each other yeah um i got to meet nick a little over a year ago i think um he was visiting oahu and punahou school where i was working at the time with a group of students uh, maori students from new zealand from aotearoa and right away we kind of hit it off Um, nick's got a lot of energy and he's doing so many cool (laughs) project-based things with his students and i was really impressed and said how do we how do we connect what's the link between what you're doing in new zealand and what we're trying to do here in hawaii and 
Um, he also orients a lot towards place. You know, the, the Maori culture and the Hawaiian culture um, share strong ties, Polynesian blood. And, and um, so it was uh, natural to sort of look into, you know, some of the work we were doing in design thinking and some of the work we were doing in systems thinking and, and start looking at ways that there could be Hawaiian and Maori, you know, Hawaiian and Aotearoa models of design thinking that were more rooted in place. And so um, we've just been sort of exchanging that conversation. And I was able to hook Nick up with some of the other um, educators at Punahou so that they could get students kind of collaborating on projects. Um, and then now recently, I've sort of uh, given more of my attention to this idea of indigenous innovation and how do we, and, and Nick's a thought partner in that, and how do we facilitate the creation of frameworks and platforms for innovation that are rooted in place and indigenous values? Um, so, you know, we, we have all these amazing indigenous communities who are brilliant designers uh, around the world, but whose designs either often get marginalized um, or uh, get taken over, right? <laughs> they, uh, yeah. they, uh, they get colonized. And mm -hmm. so, how can we, you know, how can we sort of empower those communities to um, really create a better future for themselves and for all of us um, through some of their sort of traditional methods of design, which certainly overlap with sort of the, the Silicon Valley, you know, Stanford ideal versions of design that, that mm -hmm. the world, especially the education world, has sort of come to know and adopt. Um, but they, there's some actually some really important differences um, in the approach and. And so that's been a fascinating conversation and something that uh, Nick's, Nick's helped to sort of spark and inspire. And yeah, I hope we can, we can find ways to, one of, you know, one of the things that I'm looking to do now and that I'm, I'm hoping Nick and others around the Pacific will sort of help with is you know, how do we create a, this sort of like parallel learning ecosystem where youth are really given the time and space and support that they need to connect around issues of sustainability and resilience and whole community um, because we're facing, you know, in, in my mind, we're facing a, a pretty big crisis. Um, I know, I know, a lot of scientists agree, and a lot of the youth activists um, will agree in terms of our, our, the state of our um, sort of planetary health. And and I think that that's, you know, allowing our youth to sort of focus on the context of their time and really be considered valuable, contributing members of our community, not just people who are being prepared to eventually one day participate. Um, but really, we need their perspective and their energy and, and their wisdom now. And so I think, you know, Nick, Nick and I are a lot are in alignment on that. We really see how young people can have a positive impact on the world today. And so if if we can build the right infrastructure for that, you know, I think a lot of the assumptions of school make that difficult to realize and achieve. And so how do we work around those assumptions and create this sort of parallel um, this parallel system or model that that youth can choose to to be a part of that says you know actually we're going to get busy um, taking care of ourselves and each other and this ocean that we depend on and this planet that we live on right now yeah um, awesome our last podcast we just recorded the we had some students from norway who said to have a lot of people do a little bit <laughs> and it like helps that. And I think that's really kind of echoes what you're saying here, too. So as we close up, we like to ask our guests what uh, your call to action is. What do you want to have people take away? A lot of our listeners are teachers, future teachers. So what is the little nugget you want them to take away? What's the call to action? Yeah, that's a... 
a world with so many challenges, right? It's hard to it's hard to <laughs> yeah. pick one. I, I've been there's been a group of youth activists and environmental activists here in Hawaii who just pushed so hard to pass what's called Bill 40 and the city and county legislation to to ban plastic here in in Honolulu, um, single use plastic in most of its forms, um, and you know so it's I've been thinking a lot lately about how. Well, there's all these sort of like single hot issues that it's like, oh, we have to address this, we have to address this. Um, but I think um, for me, uh, it really comes down to um, creating a space where we can listen to young people and start inviting them into both imagining, asking mm-hmm. questions about imagining and co-creating their future today. You know, if, if we can yeah. say, look, uh, I'm, it's, I'm not here to prepare you to do something, um, I'm here to invite you to do something right now. And if our if our projects and our school environments, our classrooms, our relationships with young people don't no longer feel like um, I have something I need you to do, but say I need your help with something or what can I help you with? I think those um, that's that simple switch of agency and of sort of who's you know who's driving and who's leading the the um, the ship is really critical. And I don't have a lot of, you know, I, it's going to look different for everybody. I think um, how they offer that sort of agency and, and that invitation and that voice to youth um, is going to look different for everyone. Um, I really think that, you know, we're, we're in a place right now where we need, we need to, the young people to yeah. really figure out um, what, what we need to do to look, to move forward into a better future where we can all, actually thrive and we can live in a place of abundance and we can live in whole community and, and people feel free to be their authentic selves. So I know that's not a real specific call to action, but I, I've been thinking more and more lately about how it's good to, to do all these little, you have to focus on the little specific issues sometimes, but sometimes we lose sight of, you know, the real thing is going to come from an empowered generation that feels like, you know, they, they were given from a very early age, the opportunity to create the future that they're going to live in. And, and, um, yeah, I hope we can see that in, in more classrooms and more spaces in our community. Awesome. Thank That's you. wonderful, Daniel. Thank you. What uh, If people want to connect with you, how should yeah. they go about doing that? Yeah, there's. Um, I'm at Mr. Kinzer on Instagram, and uh, I'm at Daniel Kinzer on LinkedIn. If you follow hashtag Pacific Blue Studios, that's my Pacific Blue Studios is a new project. We'll have a website coming out in the new year as well. Um, but on social, on Instagram and Facebook, you can get a little bit, a couple of teasers about what that project is all about. Very much connected to the things we've been talking about now. And um, yeah, my contact information is also available through LinkedIn and, um, and other platforms. So happy to happy to connect with educators out there and, and would love to collaborate on projects. So. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much for your time today. And thanks so much for the work that you're doing with your students and for the world. Oh, thanks, Fred. Thanks, Malia. This was an awesome conversation. I really yeah. appreciate the time. Awesome. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank Aloha. you. Aloha, Daniel. If you would like to follow Daniel on his social media, you can find him on Instagram at Mr. Kinzer, spelled K-I-N-Z-E-R, or on Twitter, Mr. K-S Tweets. If you'd like to follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. We can be found at edX Global. And if you have suggestions for future interviewees on our podcast, please send them our way. Or if you have a suggested topic, we'd love to hear from you. 
Also, if you'd like to write for the Carrero Journal, if you want to share what your students are working on, the research you're working on, anything that you think other educators would love to hear about, please get in contact with us as well.